You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Reverend Kalen Freestead. He is a United Methodist minister who has served a variety of churches in Iowa. He is the author of Destined for Salvation, God's Promise to Save Everyone. After his book went into print, Kalen traveled three years full-time just speaking at churches, and then he went back to parish ministry half-time. He retired in 2013, and since then has been spending half-time on the road since then. In the last uh, 18 years, he has spoken in all 48 contiguous states, as well as in Canada and in England. He has spoken to more than 360 churches altogether. Also, his book, Destined for Salvation, has sold more than 5,000 copies. Destined for Salvation exists as a book to read, and also there is a study version of the book as well. For more information about Kalen, you can visit his website at destinedforsalvation.org. That's all one word, destinedforsalvation.org. And the name of Kalen's ministry is Destined for Salvation Ministries. So, Kalen Freestead, welcome to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, let's just get started by you uh, telling a little bit uh, about yourself, about your growing up. So, can you tell us just about that, what, what that was like? And I, I believe you, you grew up in the Methodist Church. Is that correct? Well, actually, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, the, the American, oh, okay. Luth- uh, American Lutheran Church out in South Dakota. Uh, at Mount Vernon, South Dakota was my hometown, and I, I attended a small Lutheran church, and uh, it was a pretty conventional church or traditional church. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, ter- in regard to uh, the issue of universal salvation, which I had come to believe in, you know, years after that, after my growing up. Um, It was commonly taught that some people go to heaven and others go to hell, and that's just the way it's going to be. And Mm -hmm. so we were often warned, you know, to get get our soul saved so we wouldn't go to hell when we died. Right. So that was a pretty conventional Christian message that you grew up with. That's correct. Okay. Well, at some point then, you started to rethink that message. And what was that process like? Yeah, it was um, really during the time that I was in seminary, although it didn't have anything to do with uh, classes in seminary, there was a neighboring minister. I was serving as a uh, as a student pastor at a church in Iowa while I was going to seminary. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a, a minister in a neighboring town who was retiring, and he asked me to come over to look through his, his library to see if Mm -hmm. there were any books of his that I would be interested in having. Oh, okay. Well, that was nice. It was. And he had a lot of books that I was interested in, so I appreciated that. But one of them uh, was entitled When the Lamp Flickers uh, by Leslie. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, by by Leslie Weatherhead. Yes, I want to do do an episode on that that book. 
Oh, wow. Because that, well, because that, that was a book that had a lot of those ideas in it and it's from an earlier generation, but go, go on. I'm interrupting. Go yes. On. Oh no, that was fine. Yeah. In that book, one of the chapters is entitled, did Jesus believe in endless hell? Mm-hmm. And I thought he made a, a really good case for the belief that Jesus did not, or the conclusion that Jesus did not believe in endless hell. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he did it from a biblical sp- perspective, somewhat from sort of a logical perspective. Right. You know, like if, if God is, is love, is all loving, is that consistent with the idea of God sending people to hell to, to punish them forever because they were sinners or because they didn't get saved before they died and, and that sort of thing. So that was my first exposure to the idea of, of really the idea of universal salvation, mm-hmm. uh, at least from a biblical and a logical perspective. In retrospect, it seemed that during my college years, I was starting to become at least a little bit receptive to the idea, although I hadn't really hadn't really uh, been exposed to it in any significant sense. But uh, what that means is that when I read uh, Leslie Weatherhead's book, mm-hmm. uh, I immediately resonated with it. Uh, and, but then I didn't know if if I was confident enough in it uh, to teach it and preach it, and because uh, I didn't want to run the risk of leading people astray, right? And, and so, so maybe I, just holding it as a personal opinion, but not telling anybody about it. Pretty much, yes, that's right. And that went on for a few years. Actually, it was fairly soon after I read the When the Lamp Flickers book uh, that I found another one of Leslie Weatherhead's books, uh, Life. Life Begins at Death. I think I have that correct. It's a small book, like about 90 pages long. And that mm-hmm. one was exclusively on the subject of universal salvation. Okay. And I found that really helpful. And I became even more convinced, but um, I didn't preach it or teach it for some time. But I'll always remember that it was on Father's Day, 1986. The, the significance of, of Father's Day 1986 is I preached my first sermon on the subject of universal salvation. I finally had gotten to the point where I felt confident that it was truth and that it was not leading people astray. So I preached the sermon on universal salvation. And uh, as I greeted people at the door, there was one woman who said, oh, that's something I've always believed. I'm so glad you preached that sermon today. And what well, church was this? What, what kind of church it, it, was this it, in? It, it was a United Methodist church. Okay. And uh, in Iowa. And uh, anyway, however, things changed dramatically a couple days after that. There was uh, this self-appointed tarring and feathering committee that <laughs> showed up in my office. A couple oh, wow. days, like I think it was on Tuesday of that week. And letting me know in no uncertain terms how wrong they thought I was. And, uh, and so that was rather shocking because I thought it was such good news. I thought people are going to really be glad to hear this. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seemed that most of the congregation was not too happy to hear it. And, uh, and so I, I had been a closet universalist up to that point. In other words, stayed in, I believed it privately, but I stayed mm-hmm. in, uh, didn't come out and openly proclaim it. Well, after that Sunday, I uh, went back in the closet for a, a few years. Um, 
but then I, and then I, after several years at that church, I, I, I was moved because, you know, in the United Methodist Church, we're appointed, you know, rather than the call system. So I was appointed, right. appointed to serve another church. And um, the subject came up during a, a new member orientation session about universal salvation. And I'll always remember one of the guys, and I remember uh, exactly what he said. He, uh, it, our conversation related to this, and he said, does that mean that everyone will eventually be saved? And I thought, you know, the last time <laughs> I openly spoke <laughs> on this, it didn't turn out too well. And uh, But I took a deep breath and said, yes. And that led to a lengthy conversation on the subject. And then I went back to my office after that session and wrote down some things then the next uh, we had another session with that group and we spent really the next whole session uh, talking about it as well and so then um, it it gradually evolved what i had written gradually evolved uh, to where i did more research and i i did some really finally well my sister-in-law one of my sisters-in-law read it and she said that's so wonderful you ought to get it published well it was only like mm -hmm. 11, 11 pages long at the time so oh, okay <laughs> so that wasn't really worthy of being published and uh but i thought well i guess maybe i should start taking it seriously so i started yeah, doing your some... book your book isn't it, it isn't terribly long i've got it right here yeah it's a uh, about 150 I think, yeah, I think right I, at about 100, my copies, right at about 150 pages. Yeah, so it's not a real lengthy book. Uh, but anyway, it gradually evolved in, into a book. and uh, But it took me forever to get it done. I think it was like 18 years or something. I worked on it before I finally got it in, in print. But yeah. the, the book, I wrote it in a way where it could be easily understood. And I let some of my friends review it over the, that period of time. And if they said, well, what does this word mean? You know, if I'd used a particular theological mm -hmm. word, you know, that is commonly used in seminaries, but people in churches may not always understand the words or they're not common at least. And so I made a point of uh, rather than using theological terms, I just wrote it in a way to explain what I was talking about. And so I wrote it in a way that it would be easily understood by people. Mm -hmm. uh, not confusing, but also not at a deep theological level. It was meant to be an introduction to the teaching of, of, uh, of universal salvation. It was an introduction, but it was yet very comprehensive because I had all so, so I covered so many different uh, chapters or different topics. Right. Uh, you know, from what the Bible says about it. Uh, to uh, you know the, the grace and what that means that we're saved by grace and the issue of free will you know if, if everybody is saved does that mean you know if God saves everybody uh, does in in some cases does that mean God has to overpower people's free will and if that's the case do we not have free will or or or, or, or do we um, and I another chapter on the on the power of unconditional love and uh, what God is like. That is the foundation of it all, is our perception of what God is like. Yeah, that's that has really come clearly, as I've heard when yeah. I've heard you speak. Yeah. You really want to talk about that some of the attributes of God. And so that'd be a good this would be a good a good time to talk about that. There are a lot of different levels of, of our understanding of God. 
you know, in ancient times, uh, with the, with the Jews at least, and maybe with some others, I suppose. I'm not sure. At least in the Middle East, uh, God was considered sort of a family deity or a, a deity for your tribe, and so the Israelites believed they had a, a God, but they believed the the Palestine or the the Phoenicians and others. Uh, you know, they and the, the the Egyptians and the Greeks and so on. Everybody had their own god, and so mm-hmm. that was a very early understanding of God. But then the second level, as the least significant change, is is to believe that there was one God. But it was sort of like a well, the, I characterize it as a Wizard of Oz understanding of God. You know, a powerful gentleman behind the scenes pulling strings, causing dramatic things to happen. But was it, you know, mm-hmm. just one God, the God of the universe, God who created the universe and who was very powerful and so on. But then that still leaves God as a kindly old gentleman sitting up in heaven. And so it seems helpful to believe that God is far more than that. So God is spirit. And that, that way God can relate to all of us at the same time. And um, God is is a higher power, as, as is discussed in, you know, and presented in the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, it's we could go on and on about different aspects of God, but the ultimate thing is God is love. And um, it, it doesn't just say in the Bible that God is loving, although it does countless times, but right. it says that God is love. And that is foundational. And God is like a loving parent, except much more loving than any loving parent because God is love. And mm-hmm. that that's really the foundation of it all. And God doesn't give up on any of us. And uh, whether it's in this life or the next, because it says in, in, uh, uh, in let's see, it's in first Peter uh, chapter three, verses eight through t- 18 through 20. And then that he goes on and talks about other stuff, but he comes back to conclude that discussion on chapter four, verse six. That talks about Jesus going to hell, in effect, to preach the good news to the lost souls. And, yeah, uh, and that word hell gets trans. I mean, it's the English word hell, but I think the Greek word there was Hades. Yeah, that that's true. But regardless of the name, it's a place other than heaven, a place of torment, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so on. Uh, a place where lost people go or unsaved people go after death. You know, that'd be the general mm-hmm. general perception. And according to that, Jesus went there to preach the good news to them. And the amazing thing in that passage is that it says that he went to preach the good news to the people of, who died during the time of Noah, uh, during the flood. And right. the significance of that is that the people, according to the Bible— Back at the time of Noah, were the most evil, awful people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And that's why, according to that passage, God sent a flood to wipe them out. This human right. kind yeah, business it was because was, the flood was, was because they were only evil all the time. That's right. Except for Noah and his family, there did seem to be some hope there. So God allowed them or arranged for them to uh, survive the flood. Right. And as that, you know, as that story works, then you're kind of surprised that, you know, the last people that you think that Jesus would have on his mind after his crucifixion would be the worst people who ever lived. Exactly. And so the way I look at it is if there is hope for the worst people that have ever lived, well, there surely must be hope for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the very significant, uh, significant passage. 
And so, like I say, God, my understanding of God is that God is like a loving parent who never gives up on any of us, but keeps working. And see, the idea of, of conversion beyond death, we have been told that you have to get your soul saved before you die or you're forever lost. Well, that's really not biblical. Now, granted, there are some passages uh, that people interpret that way. Right. But I think. Well, yeah, the idea is there is the idea of judgment. Yes. But the judgment, the judgment doesn't mean, okay, I'm deciding whether to send you to hell forever or not. That's right. The judgment right. could mean you're, you're going to be, you're going to need a season of, or an age or aeons, however you want to think of that, of yes. some kind of correction. That's correct. Like, like purgatory, that, that, that concept, uh, yeah, a time of correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's the way I look at it. And, um, and that I think is very significant. Uh, so yeah, it's well, not know, one eternal. Of, one of the things that I know that you talk about too is that it's important that God is all powerful. So the yes. sovereignty of God yes. has been an important thing that you've thought about. Say something about that. Oh, yes. See, if God, it says in the Bible that God wants to save everybody. And that's in, uh, what is it, First Timothy 2, God desires everybody to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, is God not able to do what God wants to do? I mean, that's just silly. I mean, I, one of my bishops, I'll always remember, he began a prayer by saying, Oh God, who can do anything but fail? And I thought, that's profound. And I believe yeah. I believe that God wants to save everybody, and if God doesn't succeed in doing that, then that means God has failed. And how can we believe that God has failed, especially when God is all loving and all powerful? And, and if we add all knowing, all knowing to that too, you know, there, Isaiah forty six Isaiah forty six ten talks about God being the one who knows the end from the beginning. That's right. So if it's something that God wants to do, then why would God make a creation? in which God does not get what God ultimately wants. That's right. And God, according to the Bible, according to Psalms 139, God is with people everywhere, even in Sheol or the abode of the dead. And uh, it says, you know, if you try to run, run away from God, to try to get as far away as you can, you can't. There's no possibility mm-hmm. of getting uh, to uh, escaping from God's presence. And, uh, and so... God, you know, it's not just that Jesus went to uh, the, the abode of the dead, uh, Gehenna or whatever, or Hades, uh, you know, to preach the good news to lost souls. See, there are many fundamentalist Christians who are well aware of that passage and very familiar with it. But they, they, the way they interpret it is that is, it was a one-time thing. Jesus uh, went to preach the good news to the people who lived before he did, you see, because Jesus hadn't lived yet, so they wouldn't have had a chance to hear about Jesus. Therefore, he went to preach the good news to them. It was sort of a once and for all, take it or leave it kind of a visit to, to, uh, to, the, to the place where the lost were. Uh, and th- so that's the way they interpret it, that it's a once and for all th- thing, you know, rather than a continuous thing. Yeah, the, the thing that I've noticed is that we end up looking through the Bible, looking at the Bible through a lens. And depending on the church that we grew up in, especially if we were grown up or formed in a church that had very, very strict doctrines, you're taught to look at the Bible a certain way. Yes, that's correct. And and once you're in that system for a long period of time and everything's explained to you that way, 
it's just hard to see the Bible any differently. Uh, but then what, what I noticed is that once I allowed myself to really start looking at the arguments for Christian universalism and looking at God as a loving parent who desired the salvation of all, who had covered the sin of all in Christ, who, who was sovereign overall and who would ultimately be all in all. And I started looking at all the scriptures for that <laughs> and started looking <laughs> at early church fathers who had believed this. And I started just looking at all the good arguments for it. When I started looking at it from that perspective and authors that were writing about it, well, I found a lot of verses that I hadn't really paid too much attention to before. But once I started looking at those verses with this new uh, universal uh, reconciliation, universal salvation idea, I just started seeing a lot of things that I hadn't seen before. Yes. And and you mentioned uh, the belief of people during the time of the early church in the belief in universal salvation. And that, I believe, is of extreme significance. I had no idea before I started uh, studying this as well myself in, in depth. And that is of extreme significance that uh, it was commonly believed, apparently much more common to believe in universal salvation than to believe in eternal damnation during the time of the early church. And uh, there's Origen and Clement and, and, and of Alexander and, and a lot of other people who taught universalism. And that didn't change until the sixth century. Uh, it was, you know, of course, in the year 553 uh, is the second, first, whatever, I'm not sure. It's, well, it's the, a, the, yeah, it's an, the an fifth, ecumenical it's the council. Fifth, it's the fifth general council, but it's the second council at Constantinople. There we go. Okay, yes. Anyway, so that's where the church officially took a stand against the teaching of universal salvation. And so, so for more than 500 years, which is a long time, for more than 500 years following the time of Jesus, the predominant teaching, it appears, among Christians was to believe in universal salvation. And that's, that's yeah, very there significant. Were, there were six of the six teaching centers where they had formal catechetical schools, uh, four of them were of the universal reconciliation viewpoint. One was of the annihilation viewpoint, and the other was the eternal torment. That's correct. Camp, and it was that it was that interpretation that ended up. Um, Augustine was really the theologian who really formulated it for the for Western Christianity, and once Western Christianity became aligned with the empire, and then became a violent, you know. Uh, approve the use of violence. Um, it just, it started Christianity as an imperial religion had to, had to sort of focus down on something that would work for emperors and empire. That's right. And uh, to me, that explains a lot why the, the Christian universalism was sort of put, put to the side once we, once Christianity became an imperial religion. Exactly. That's a good a good perception, and that's exactly right. That's what happened. In regard to the foundation of universalism, I'm thinking from a biblical perspective. I'd mm -hmm. like to share some things regarding that. You know, okay. for, for example, there's Luke chapter 15, which with the three parables: the parable of the right. lost lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Right. Uh, it is, I think, of extreme significance. There was a hundred sheep, and one of them got lost. And the shepherd went out and looked for the one until he found it. Now, it doesn't say- Until he, he found it. He didn't that, just go looking. That's right. He didn't give up. He's, right. As, and that's, that's the key word, until he found it. And so we don't know how long it took. 
but he looked until he found it. And, you know, in most churches, people would think, well, if like in, say, for example, attendance uh, of your mm-hmm. members, if you got 99% of the people to attend, well, hallelujah, that'd be very successful. Right. Or, we're or not going to go out looking. We're not going to go out looking for that one person. No, you would be very content. Or if it's ninety-nine percent of the people in the community are churched and they're and they're Christians, okay, you know that reduces the motivation to go look for that last one. But that is of extreme significance, you know. So the shepherd looked for the one lost sheep, and the the lady looked for the one lost coin, and uh, the father kept waiting and yearning and looking for his lost son to come home, the prodigal son until he welcomed him home. And so those are yeah, the, really, I like, I like that. I like that detail in the parable is that the father is, is expectantly waiting for the son to come home. Yeah, that's right. It's not like he was preoccupied doing other things. And the son sort of surprised him when he showed up, he saw him at a distance right. and ran and hugged right. him and kissed him. <laughs> yeah. So that, that tells us a lot about the character of God. And that, like I say, is the foundation of it all. But there's so many other passages, you know, like I, the passages which I call the all passages. In other words, the mm-hmm. passages that indicated that all people will be saved. And it's of great significance that the word all means all. You know, there's no ambiguity to what the word means, whether it's Hebrew or Greek or English. The word all means mm-hmm. all. And, uh, you know, like Jesus in chapter John 12, 32 says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And, yes, uh, Romans, that's a powerful. Yeah, Romans five eighteen. Therefore, just as one man's or Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's or Christ's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. That's particularly powerful because most, especially if I'm talking with a conservative Christian, I can ask, well, do you believe that you know all people have fallen short? Yes, and they'll say yes. <laughs> You know, that's, but, it, yeah. but then if you say, but then if you look at that logic in Romans five, mm-hmm. okay, well, look what Paul does with this. He, you know, he says the same thing, but then he also says all, you know, are, are covered, are going to be, are covered with the righteousness of Christ now that that's leads right. to, you know, life and forgiveness. Exactly. And that's a perfect parallel. It's not like, right. not like all people are sinners, but only certain select people are saved. All are right. saved. And then that, all, yeah, then that gets reaffirmed at the end of toward the end of Romans, Romans eleven thirty two, where we find Paul saying that God has consigned all people to disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. Yeah, yeah. And another one that I like of the all passages is First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For yes. as as all is the same theme. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Yeah, and and, it, uh, and also that idea that God will ultimately be all in all. That that's yes, that's what that is all leading to. Yeah, Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not is not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It, it's just amazing. It's a it's wonderful that it's that it's this is not just one obscure passage. Uh, it just the concept of all is repeated over and over and over. And there's, like mm-hmm. I say, no ambiguity to the, what the word all right. means. It means all. Now, one of, the, one of the things that people will have a problem with about this is they'll say, well, I think especially in America, because we are the land of the free. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, and America is about self-determination. Uh, people can have the idea, they can sort of transport those ideas into their Christian faith. 
And so the idea is that, well, God gives everybody a chance, but we're the ones, we're the captains of our own destiny. We're the ones, we are self-determining. We decide ultimately what we are going to do. So, yes. you know, that, that freedom is always a good thing, even when we use freedom to, you know, even if we used our freedom to ultimately ruin ourselves, uh, freedom is such a strong value in all, our culture that the idea that God would deny our freedom even to lock ourselves in hell forever yeah. uh, sounds like a bad thing. So how do you, how do you, to some people, so how do you work through that idea of free will and, and how that relates to Christian universalism? Yeah. And that is really a good point. It's, it is a central issue that needs to be addressed. Um, it's, it's a combination of God being a loving parent. God will wear everybody down. And God has all of time to accomplish this. So it doesn't have to be done during this lifetime, you know, to get people mm-hmm. saved, get people converted and transformed. God has all of time, as much time as necessary. And so a loving parent can usually reach a, a child. I mean, there there can be exceptions, but you know, you, mm-hmm. parents when they just keep loving a child, loving a child, loving a child, usually it has a, a profound effect. Sometimes it takes longer than others, uh, but it, normally it has a pretty profound positive effect. Well, God is a loving parent to the extreme, to the ultimate, and and so I think God just keeps loving us, loving us into heaven, so to speak, loving us into con- uh, uh, conversion and transformation. And God has as much time as it takes. And so, well, and I, the, the, you talked about something important there: the idea that we are all God's children. Yes. And and uh, you know that's sometimes disputed. Um, some people say, "Well, no, no, everybody's not God's child." But I like that passage from uh, Acts, the 17th chapter of Acts where Paul is preaching in Athens to a group of pagan people and he compliments them on their spirituality. And he, he begins, I just, I know you have an altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about what you don't know about. Uh, but he, but he, he says to them as even your own poets know, we are all the children of God and it is in God whom we are all living and moving and having our being. And God is not far from any one of us. And I, I just think that that was such a beautiful way for him to begin speaking to this group of pagan folks. Sure. Now, regarding the issue of whether God violates our free will, and actually, see, we all violate the free will of our children at, at times. For example, if a young child runs out into traffic, well, we clearly and immediately violate that child's free will by running out and grab him by the arm and, or pick him up and carry him to safety. You know, that's violating right. the free will. And so, well, and then until, until they, once they get old enough to understand that, that, you know, what could happen if they do that, and then you're, it's, they would automatically choose not to run out into traffic because they know what could happen to them. That's right. We we help them learn that. And, uh, and so now with, with, uh, with John Wesley, he addressed this pretty extensively. And that is, uh, he, he used the term liberty. And he was saying that God does not violate our liberty in the process of conversion, but it is only through our liberty or only through our free will that we freely accept salvation from God. God doesn't force us on us, but it is through our free will that we accept salvation as opposed to our free will being violated uh, in the acceptance of salvation. Well, okay, now this kind of gets us into the territory of 
uh, discussing United Methodist Church and its theology, that sort of the official theological position of the United Methodist Church, as I understand it, is that God gives grace to everyone. Yes. And so that everyone, God wants everyone to be saved and God gives grace to everyone. So those two things are not in question. Right. What's in question then is what people will do with the grace. And some people will receive this and do what is necessary. And then some people will not. And that there will ultimately be a division in which some will be with God eternally and some will be separated from God eternally. And in sort of in a nutshell, that's kind of the official yes. teaching of the United Methodist Church as I understand it. Yes. And it's in it's see, we are not as rigid in regard to the doctrine as of our church as some are. We have what's what we call the articles of religion in our book of discipline, you know, the book of discipline of the United Methodist Church. Right. And yeah, what, that's the book what, of discipline. And that's just kind of the summary of all of the of the sort of interpretations that the church has made about various questions. Yes. And uh, anyway, so uh, we have this one article which which clearly states that some people are going to go to heaven and others go to hell, and that's what it will be for eternity, even though God doesn't want that. But see, what that means is the United Methodist Church is an Arminian church. and um, Yeah, after Jacob Arminius, who, that's who took correct. the different point of view from John Calvin back in that's the Protestant right. yeah. Reformation days. Yeah, where with John Calvin, uh, with Calvinism, God's in control and God saves people. <laughs> and it, it would include going against people's free will to save them or to damn them. So God makes the ultimate decision. So in that case, God is, is all-powerful, but in my opinion, cannot possibly be all-loving to make the decision, even before people are born, to decide who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. And you yeah, when I, studied, when I studied Calvinism, uh, I read somebody who was a Calvinist who said that from the Calvinist point of view, that people don't just uh, you know, decide that they don't want to be saved. From the Calvinist point of view, people are born... De, uh, totally depraved and yes. unable to even desire the things of God. Yes. So it's only a miraculous act of God's intervening grace that even that even gives them the power or the possibility or the inclination to have faith. Yes. So even faith itself is considered to be unachievable for a fallen human being. It's only by an act of God's uh, grace then that somebody can't even have faith. Yes. In regard to this, I'd like, I'd like to put it in the context of God being all-powerful and all-loving. And uh, mm -hmm. with Calvinism, it seems clear to me, but well, there's no doubt, God is all-powerful according to that theology. But at the same right. time, God can't possibly be all-loving because of saving only certain select few. Now, with Arminianism, it's sort of the other way around. God wants to save everybody. But God gives people free will, which overpowers God in effect, and therefore God can't, it does not have the ability to save everybody. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I started thinking about that, that, that you know, that idea. The, the problem I ended up having with it is okay, you say that God is all loving and wants everybody to be saved, but if God is all knowing and knows that everybody is not going to be saved, uh -huh. then how can it, how does it help to say, well, I wanted, I wanted something but I knew I wasn't going to get it, but I went ahead anyway. Yeah. That, that there's sort of a, 
whether you check, take the Calvinist point of view or the Arminian point of view, you end up with with a God um, who uh, still makes a creation knowing that at the end, all are not going to be well. Right. And so with Calvinism, you have an all-powerful God, but not an all-loving God. With Arminianism, you have an all-loving God who desperately wants to save everybody, but a God who is not all-powerful because God fails to accomplish what God wants to do. Yeah, well, an all-loving God who seems to be somewhat at odds with God's own self. It's like, I want yeah. to do this, but and I, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not going, I want to do this, but I'm not going to. Right. It's a weird, yes. it's, a, yeah. it's a weird situation. But with the teaching of universal salvation, you get beyond that problem. In other words, right. it's only with the teaching of universal salvation can we believe that God is both all-loving and all-powerful. God not only wants to save everybody, but God is going to accomplish it. And I think okay, that so, is, that's really central. Yeah. So let's get back to the, we were talking about the United Methodist Church and the yes. Arminian theology yes. there. Yes. Well, your experience has basically been, you've been pretty open about your Christian universalism. So even though it's not the official teaching of the church, neither have they sort of gone after you to defrock you or kick you out. That's correct. Which means we're not as we, our denomination is not as extreme on the issue of universal salvation as some are, because I've, I'm well aware of, uh, of churches in, in at least two or three different Christian denominations uh, that which would be considered more fundamentalist, where if a minister comes to believe in universal salvation, they are just expelled from the church. They can no longer function as ministers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but now I don't, I can't say that everybody would get by with it. Like I did. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think I achieved the respect, gaining the respect of the Bishop early on. And that was just sort of a succession of bishops after that. And I don't know if it's merely that I proved myself once and therefore they just continued to accept me. I, I don't know for sure how to interpret mm -hmm. that, but it seems overall as a general statement, you know, I think that's valid that uh, generally in the United Methodist Church, you know, you can teach universal salvation and, and, and well, the, the, and you, you'll be okay. But the key is your congregation. Now, granted, right. you know, you can, it sometimes it doesn't matter what the bishop believes. If your congregation very strongly disagrees with what you're saying, they can basically, even though we have an appointive system, they can in effect push you out. Uh, you know, if there's okay. too much of an extreme difference between your views and, and the congregation. But see, okay, as, as I told you, I, I first preached it on Father's Day in 1986. And then it was on in, uh, let's see, I think it might have been 80, oh, 88. Yeah. Or 80, maybe 89 when I preached it again uh, at another church. But I realized that I had not made a very good case for it the first time. And therefore, mm -hmm. I didn't blame them for responding negatively. I blamed myself because I did such a poor job of explaining it. And so after that, I did a much better job of explaining it and making a case for universal salvation. That really helped a lot. And so whenever I preached or taught it in later years, uh, I didn't get the same backlash that I had the first time. In fact, I, I got quite favorable reactions. 
In fact, in is there is there any part within the United Methodist Church where there is ongoing consideration or uh, the ability to continue to talk about these types of things? Not in a formal way, but informally, certainly that has been the case. Uh, a, a rather well-known, very well-known uh, United Methodist minister, David Lowe's Watson, wrote a book called uh, 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 God Does Not Foreclose. And that was in ni- 1989, I think. And mm-hmm. so that's been a long time ago. Uh, and actually, it was, it was during the time when I was starting to get serious about writing a book. And, I th- and when I learned he'd written a book on, on universal salvation, I thought, oh, no, he beat me to it. He wrote, already wrote my book. But then, <laughs> so I immediately ordered it and read it through very carefully and quickly. And I realized, nope, he didn't write my book because I have a lot of concepts or issues that I wanted to address that he didn't address. Right. But, uh, but he is a well-known person. Uh, United Methodist minister across not just a, a given conference, but the, across in the general church because he served on one or two general agencies, and uh, and so that he got got some pretty negative backlash from that. But he still maintained his position, and he often was invited to come and speak at different places around around uh, around the, the you know different. Well, I think I think this is going to be a continuing conversation within the Methodist Church because the Methodists that I know tend to be very uh, loving, grace-filled type of folks. That's correct, and they really want to emphasize the love of God and yep. the grace and mercy of God uh, towards people. And I think once that they start realizing the history of all of this. Um, that they might hopefully might want to make some more room for folks in their church to say, oh, yeah, this is an acceptable point of view. Not everybody has to agree with it, but it certainly could be something that we could learn to accept and understand. Exactly. In the, in the, at, at this, I think we've kind of come to a point in time um, that people are just realizing that there are a lot of good arguments for this and a lot of good reasons to think this way. And they might not want to, you know, quit their church or feel like their children can't come to that church and express their viewpoints on this. Those types of things usually will lead to change over time. And I, I, I agree with your perception of your, regarding the United Methodist Church or United Methodists. I think that's accurate. We, we tend to be a pretty open-minded group uh, and sort of a live and let live kind of attitude to some degree uh, because we we realize that while we may have strong convictions on certain thing, well, other Christians may have strong convictions uh, that aren't the same as ours. And, and that's, well, there it. is that whole, uh, that Leslie, it's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral of Bible tradition, experience, and reason. Yes. And to me, because you have that, that allows you to, to look at, you know, you have that experience and reason, which allows you to look at Bible and tradition in in uh, in in continuing to have a more, I guess, broad-minded view about things would be my hope for the United Methodist Church going forward. In regard to um, the teachings within the United Methodist Church, it is of great significance that John Wesley came to believe in universal salvation later in his life. His, his teachings early on, from the beginning, pretty much of his ministry, which is a long ministry was very compatible with the teaching of universalism because he taught so much about the God's love and forgiveness and compassion and, and so on and grace. Um, but he didn't really 
he didn't really uh, preach it very directly, or he didn't preach it directly, but it was only toward the end of his ministry. Clearly, came in my estimation, came to believe in universal salvation, even though there are some United Methodists who say, well, we don't agree. We, we Because he is based on a, on a couple of his sermons late in life that many of us have concluded, yes, he did believe in universal salvation. That's pretty clear. Do you clear. remember, if people, if people were interested in those sermons, do you remember the names of those sermons? It's, uh, I don't know of a number, but the date that he preached it is March 13th, 1782. Uh, so March okay. 13th, 1782, entitled On the Fall of Man. Uh, there are, there's at least two volumes of his sermons, uh, you know, that are in print. And this would not have been on the original or the first volume because the first volume was like maybe after or maybe halfway through his ministry or maybe not even that. Okay. So this, so this would have been in the second volume of his sermons toward the end of his ministry. That's right. Yeah, because he, he, he was born in 1703 and died in 1791. And, and so this is 1782. Uh, so he would have been like 79 years old at the time. Oh, okay. When, when he preached that sermon. Okay. On the Fall of Man by John Wesley. That's correct. That'd be a good sermon to, to look up for a Methodist or somebody that's just interested in. Sure. And in, in, in to me, that you know, that happens in people's lives. They have experiences, their viewpoints subtly begin to change, and they become convinced about something. And it makes sense to me that toward the end of his life, he felt like maybe it was time for him to just go ahead and be clear about this. Yes. Well, his brother, Charles Wesley, who wrote, of course, a lot of hymns, he wrote like 3,000 hymns or something. Oh my it, was, it was just astonishing how many hymns he wrote. Virtually all hymn, hymn books these days would have multiple hymns that, that Charles Wesley wrote, whether they are uh, United Methodist or, or Presbyterian or, or others. But mm -hmm. it, it's well accepted that Charles Wesley came to believe in universal salvation much sooner than John did, than John Wesley did. Oh, okay. And so I have a feeling maybe Charles had some influence on John as well, because they were very close. Okay, and do people think that just because of the lyrics in the hymns? Uh, actually, I've not, I guess I've not done really thorough research on that to understand it beyond the hymns, but it's just uh, I've had the understanding from my readings that uh, Charles did come to believe in universal salvation much sooner than John, but I really can't point you to a given source, I guess, offhand. Uh, a particular note on that. But that's something. Note, note of that. But that, so for that, John Wesley is in his sermon on the fall of man affirmed it. Then his brother Charles, there is a sense that he, he had come to affirm this even before his brother had. That's correct. Yeah. So that's something that people are interested in this might want to do some further looking into. Yes. And there, it's clear that there were Methodist ministers who had, would have been, in effect, under uh, John Wesley, because he was the leader of the movement. Uh, and there was one like James Rowley, for example. And uh, John, okay. John Murray, who was the leader of the Methodist movement or you know, in, in, in the American colonies. Uh, and, and so... It was under James Rowley, a Methodist preacher in England, that uh, John Murray came to believe, or at least he was sort of sympathetic toward the cause, it's, it seems, but it was under uh, 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 James Rowley's 
preaching and teaching that John Murray came to, to believe in, in universal salvation. So these and, were people uh, that were in Methodist circles and then came to believe in Christian universalism. That's right. And so that was has always been perceived to be consistent with the teachings of, of, of John Wesley, uh, you know, that the, a lot of the Methodists be, became universalists. And like I say, uh, 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 John Murray came to the American colonies in the year 1770, and uh, he, he worked closely with Quakers and Baptists, interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, because, well, Quakers, that's not a surprise, but Baptists had a much different view than a much more favorable view on the teaching of universal salvation than many of them have today. But he worked closely with the Quakers and the Baptists in spreading the teaching of universal salvation throughout the American colonies. And uh, so it was under, under Murray's leadership that the Universalist Church in America was formed. And, now, isn't there an interesting story about how Murray gets to America and yes, what happens? Yes, there is. Uh, this, I think, is really a, a great story. His, his, in England, it started with, with tragedy. Uh, his wife uh, had gotten sick and his child got, had gotten sick. Both his wife and his child died. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he had spent a lot of money, uh, you know, he had borrowed a lot of money for doctors, for doctoring them, but that failed and he was, uh, he was in terribly in debt. He ended up in debtor's prison and uh, his wife's brother ended up bailing him out, but he was so disillusioned. And see, a big factor was that he had, he had started preaching and teaching universalism and, and the friends turned away from him and, and he just became very disillusioned. And so after his brother-in-law bailed him out, he decided to go to America for, to start a new life. And he was determined he was never going to preach about universalism again. Oh, really? <laughs> and so he got on, on the ship and headed for New York City. And uh, the uh, wind blew them off course. And they ended up on the New Jersey shore, on, stranded on a sandbar on the New Jersey shore. Uh, and uh, he went ashore to uh, see if where he, he could find a place to get some food for you know for the the people on the ship he mm -hmm. ran into a guy named thomas potter and thomas potter had built a chapel 10 years before that he, he had come to believe in universal salvation and so it wasn't a totally new idea with bury by any means but it was not very many that believed it before that but thomas potter believed in universal salvation he built a chapel and he was waiting for a minister to come to preach uh, about universal salvation in his chapel. And so uh, uh, John Murray showed up at Thomas Potter's door and he was, you know, said he was, he, they were stranded offshore. He was hoping to get some food and, uh, but they got to talking and, uh, and, and they realized that they were in agreement regarding the issue of universal salvation. Um, and Thomas Potter wanted uh, Murray to preach in his in his chapel, but Murray said, "Well, I'm I'm not going to preach that anymore. In fact, as soon as the wind changes, so we can get the ship off the sandbar, I'm headed for New York." Uh huh. Well, Thomas Potter said, "Okay, I believe the wind that is keeping <laughs> that is keeping your ship on the shore is the breath of God, and I believe God wants you to preach in my in my chapel, and I believe the wind won't change until you do." And so. Would you, if if the wind is still blowing this coming Sunday, will you consider that a, an indication from God that God wants you to preach in my chapel? And John Murray hesitated a little bit, and he said, "Okay, I, I'll I'll do that." 
So the wind blew and blew and blew. And then finally on Sunday morning, the wind was still blowing. And he went in and he preached a sermon to all the people that Thomas Potter could gather in his chapel. His sermon was an hour and 45 minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, pretty much at the end of the sermon, somebody came in from the ship and said, the wind has changed. The ship is freed and we're leaving for New York soon. Well, John Murray decided not to go with them. And he received such favorable comments from the people after that service that he decided that he would again preach universal salvation. And so he and Thomas Potter became friends. He preached uh, more than once. I mean, occasionally in the future uh, after that at, at Thomas Potter's chapel. And then he went to become the, the primary leader and organizer of the Universalist Church in America. He, he under his leadership, they organized a Universalist Church in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And so that's considered the, the first uh, uh, of the churches uh, of the uh, Unitarian, uh, the, the Universalist Church in America. And the Universalist Church in America did merge in 1961 with the Unitarian Church Unitarian Universalist Association. Yeah, there's a Christian. There's a Christian. There are some Christian Universalist churches within the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Yes, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. It's kind of a small group, and yes. I've, I've wondered about that. The point of view I've, at least where I'm at right now, is that it would be good if the focus of our preaching could be the good news that Jesus has proclaimed, the kingdom of God that is now present. And the basic message that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he warns that sin leads to destruction. Yes. And and just to say that within the history of the of the Christian faith, there have been a, a variety of interpretations. Some have thought the destruction leads to eternal torment. Some have thought it leads to annihilation. Some have thought that it leads to restoration. Yes. But that should be a conversation that we can have inside the church, and people should know that just that they can be Christian and believe that God will finally use even God's judgments of love to restore all of his children. And that's a perfectly fine way to be Christian. Not that everybody is going to agree with you on that. Yes. So that's kind of, that, that's more the direction I've been leaning towards. Sure. And, you know, one of the basic things people will say when, when I present to them the teaching of universal salvation, that everybody will eventually be saved, they the most common thing, if they object, the most common thing, well, besides not realizing that the Bible teaches universalism, but they will say, well, what about Hitler? Well, mm-hmm. if given enough time, I could convert Hitler. I guarantee you, if I had enough time, if I had all the time necessary to hang out with Hitler, to befriend him, to do good things for him, to to give him you know, counseling regarding whatever issues he was dealing with in life, I guarantee you, you give me enough time, I could convert Hitler. You know, in other words, I could, could help his, him to become a transformed person. If I can do it, God surely can. And, and God has as much time as necessary. And so I believe, like you say, it's a matter of restoration. And so I don't have any doubt. Well, see, basically when people say, well, what about Hitler? They're saying, well, basically I'm a good person. Therefore, God can save me. It's easy to save me because, and others like me because we're good people. And so they're limiting what God can do by saying God can't save Hitler. Well, I don't think we should limit what God can do. Yeah, there are a couple of things I think about when the Hitler question comes up. One is that 
Hitler growing up in Germany would have been a recipient of a lot of anti-Semitism, which would have been taught to him by Christian sources. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so that even Martin Luther, toward the end of his life, wrote a terrible book called The Lies of the Jews, in which he really recommended terrible things uh, against the Jewish people. And so, the, you know, so the, the torch of anti-Semitism was carried and taught in medieval Christian Europe. Sure. So he would have inherited a lot of these anti-Semitic views from Christianity. Sure. And then the and then the the other thing about Hitler is sometimes people will say, well, you know, what about Hitler? And I'll say, well, I'm assuming what you're wanting to talk about is you're wanting to talk about the worst sinner ever. And uh, and then I just have a little bit of fun with them and say, actually, there's a person that already is claiming this title in the New Testament rather forcefully. His name is the Apostle Paul. And he, <laughs> right. he referred to himself as the chief of sinners yes. because he was trying to kill the baby church, essentially. Yes. And uh, if even and 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 I ask him, and what did what did Paul bring to his conversion experience? You know, nothing. He only had one thing on his mind, and that was to stop Christian. You know, this this movement of the way people following Jesus before it got too far out of hand. Yeah. And so he brought zero faith or anything. It just all landed literally. He was, you know, saved by grace. It just all happened happened to him. Sure. And then he was great, and he was grateful for it. And to me, understanding that helps me to, when I read Paul and when he's talking about that, that he is saved by grace, what he is really getting at yes. uh, there. That's just part of his experience. That's right. Well, Kalen, we have been visiting for about uh, for about an hour now, and I think we've had a good conversation. And I, I hope that through this conversation that people feel like they've gotten to know you and that they will reach out to you through your uh through your website and through and uh, maybe pick up a, a copy of your book. I know you can order it on Amazon. Uh, you can order the book. Uh, you can order the book there, and then people can go to your website and get resources there. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, the website tells a lot about me and my ministry. You can also order order copies of my book through my website as well. Okay, say the say the name of the website again. Yes, it's Destined for Salvation Ministry. I'm, I'm sorry. Destinedforsalvation.org. Destinedforsalvation.org. Right, and I do, and I do continue to travel and speak around the country. So I would be delighted to receive an invitation to speak at uh, churches or other groups uh, any place around the country. Spend about half okay, time, so, about half time on the road with my wife, living in our travel trailer, and we'll go yeah, anywhere. Now that now that now that hopefully we're winding down from the COVID. Yes, uh, situation. Yeah, you can get back to that's doing right. that. That's right. My last speaking engagement was in Texas on March the fifteenth of last year, and I've really missed being on the road and speaking on the subject of universalism. And uh, well, I know I had you come uh, several years ago. Now, our, our Sunday yes. Sunday school class at First Christian Church in Harrison, we had been discussing these issues. Right. And uh, I'd come across your book and became acquainted with you and invited you and you came and talked to our Sunday school class. And that was a really pleasant, uh, pleasant experience. It was a good group. I really enjoyed being there. Well, Kalen, uh, I have experienced you as a very gentle and generous and sincere <clears throat> Christian soul who has gradually come to these convictions and has put in a great uh, deal of 
a study into it and met with a little adversity along the way, but it <laughs> seems, right. you know, but it seems mostly that you've, you've run into a lot of people that are wanting to have this uh, conversation. And so, uh, uh, and that, you know, your correct. book that you wrote, even though it took you so long to write it, it was really kind of one of the early, one of the books that kind of came out a while ago now, as far as this resurgence of interest in Christian universalism. Yeah, and that is of great significance, my book. There was only, except for David Lowe's Watson's book, uh, God Does Not Foreclose, like I say, I think it was 1989, there was another one uh, called If Grace is True uh, by uh, Phil Philip Gully and Jim Mulholland. And that came right. out in 2003. And mine was also in 2003. And so I was aware of only two. Actually, I'm, actually the Mulholland uh, Gully book was not even in print when I was pursuing, you know, when mine was in the process of being printed and published. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't even technically out, but I knew it was it was coming out, and uh, so not counting that one, which was pretty much synonymous with mine, there was only the David Lowe's Watson book that had been uh, had been had come out in you know recent decades, and so mine was in two thousand three, and of course we went on the road right away after that to, right. to but then I am personally aware of at least 50 books that have been published specifically on the topic of universal salvation since my book came out. It's yeah. just phenomenal interest. And websites is a bunch of websites that are specifically designed to spread the teaching of universal salvation. So Yeah, and I hope people continue to write books because each person that looks at this is probably going to see something a little bit differently or have a little different insight to make and to yes. contribute to the conversation. Yes. Well, I really have enjoyed this uh, conversation with you. Uh, I hope that more people get to know you and get in touch with you and take a look at your book. God bless you, Kalen, for your life and your ministry and for the hope that you're helping all of us have. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed being with you today. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll talk again. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.